Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm David Ekstrom. On today's podcast, Successful Farming Digital Content Editor Megan Schilling visited with Claire Smith of Maple Drive Farms in Southern Michigan. This nearly 200-year-old farm specializes in producing and selling specialty grains. Before we hear from Megan and Claire, we would like to thank our sponsor, Massey Ferguson, a proud supporter of Century Farms and those building a lasting farming legacy. Hello, I'm Darren Parker, Vice President of Massey Ferguson, North America. And on behalf of everyone here at Massey Ferguson, I'd like to congratulate every Century Farm. We build straightforward and dependable equipment for farms like these and people like you. The people working hard to build something that lasts. The people who were born to farm. So from all of us at Massey Ferguson, thank you for inspiring us with your hard work and dedication. Enjoy the podcast. At Massey Ferguson, we're proud of our 175-year history of straightforward and dependable machinery. We're proud to build tractors and hay equipment that help feed the world year after year. But most of all, we're proud to support farmers. Always have been, always will be. Check out our entire lineup of farmer-first tractors, equipment, and implements today at MasseyFerguson.com or visit your local dealer to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. Well, Claire, I know that Maple Drive Farm is in southern Michigan and was founded in 1837, so nearly 200 years old. That's quite a family legacy. Uh, Can you talk about just some specifics about the farm then? Tell us where it's located, what's grown, um, what is your connection to the farm? So the farm is in southern Michigan. So if you, if everyone looks at the palm of their right hand, we're like at the base of the palm, right in the middle, um, more aptly described as Addison, Michigan, which is a village of, you know, 482 people. And our family has been there a very long time. Um, so as you said, almost 200 years. And it's only been recently that the farm has, I guess, more significantly grown in size. I mean, my grandpa added, you know, quite a bit of land in the 80s. And then more recently, my dad purchased another parcel of land. And so what's been really cool to see as an adult is like how I mean, maybe it's really obvious, but like how decisions lead to where we are now. Um, So, you know, my grandpa and his father deciding to pivot from dairy to row crops. And now my dad's decision to pivot from, you know, corn and soy to this alternative grain um, venture that we're taking on. Those decisions really do shape the future of the farm. And I get to benefit from those decisions. And so, Now, when I look at it, I think of, you know, what decisions am I making today? Um, And it's kind of fun to imagine what the outcome of those decisions might look like for the farm. And I know, you know, my mom and I and how crazy we can think and dream and all the sorts of crazy ideas. I mean, I went home the other week and I'm like, what about putting an an ice rink in the front of the farm so we can build community and then we can create like a junior hockey league and then open up a hot chocolate stand and also sell some grain <laughs> you know just That's like beautiful. different right so just different ideas for 
you know, the future that I want to create. So in terms of my connection, I grew up on the farm, um, absolutely hated it with every fiber of my being. We went to school in town, which all country kids will know that phrase, um, going to school in town. So everything was half an hour away for us. And I just hated that my friends were so far away. And, you know, before I got my driver's license, I was relying on my older siblings for rides to town or, you know, picking up from, you know, soccer practice or whatever. So I didn't love it. I didn't love the chores. And I thought, this is so funny thinking back to this now, but I really thought it was the most normal childhood. And, you know, everybody grew up in the country because a lot of my classmates grew up in the country. So I thought it was, you know, horrendous, boring, and I wanted to move to the big city, specifically New York. Um, I'm not really sure why, probably because I watched one movie but um, with New York in it, but I decided to become a pediatric cardiologist. And so I went to school. I went, you know, not very far up to Ann Arbor, which is just an hour away from the farm to University of Michigan for a bachelor's in neuroscience with the full intention of going to med school and then getting away from Michigan, possibly as far as I humanly could. But the thing is, you make plans and then life happens (laughs) and, you know, you start to learn things as an adult. So as I was going through university, realizing I'm actually really horrible at all science classes and um, it didn't spark joy for me. And there was this one really pivotal moment in um, university when I was walking to the library about to pull an all-nighter for an exam I wasn't ready for in biochem. And the thought occurred to me, like, if you don't, like, you don't have to be pre-med and you don't have to be a pediatric cardiologist if you don't want to be. And so even though I had told people for the past 10 years that I was going to become this, you know, fancy doctor and, you know, save kids' lives, um, if it didn't make sense for me, if I didn't want to do that, I didn't have to do that. So that was probably the beginning of that adult realization of my decisions have consequences um, for good and for bad. So After school, I kind of wandered around for a bit. And then in 2015, my dad and mom were thinking about this idea of planting this new alternative grain called teff. Mm -hmm. And I was living in Western Canada at the time, and they came to visit and pitched me this idea to come back and start something, anything with this food grade grain. And you know, my parents are incredibly brilliant people. You know, my dad's a farmer and a lawyer. My mom owns and operates a preschool, but they aren't geeking out over new cookbooks like I do. And so coming back for food made sense for me. And I've always derived a lot of joy from food and cooking and that kind of thing. So moving back to the farm, and starting to play around with Teff and one thing led to the next. And now my parents are probably going to listen to this podcast, but um, I really, I enjoy the country now. <laughs> um, I see the values. I I understand why my parents chose to live there over, you know, the bigger cities like Ann Arbor or Chicago, which is where we could have moved, you know, for my dad's job. But um, I see the values of being raised in a small village and, you know, close to family and on the family farm. I do see those values. 
And so when you talk about Tef and coming back to experiment with that ancient grain, tell us what Tef is. What does it look like? Um, was its nutrition? Why is it an ancient grain? And what you're doing with it? And um, go into Tefola which is your company a little bit. Yeah. So we learned about TEF from a family friend who works a lot in agriculture in East Africa. So TEF is native to Ethiopia and Eritrea. And traditionally those cultures are milling it into a flour and then they're fermenting it with water because there's a trace amount of yeast, naturally occurring yeast on TEF. So very similar to cabbage or grapes. Um, you'll see that um, I guess you can't really see it because Tef is the smallest grain in the world. And it kind of, if you pick up a handful of it, it kind of looks like large sand and it acts a lot like sand. So if there's a hole in a bag, the Tef will find it and you will not have any more Tef <laughs> in the bag. <laughs> um, so it acts kind of like sand or water. So it's very, very small, um, a little bit oblong in shape. And there are thousands of varieties. Uh, but we grow two of them. So it's called red teff, also known as brown teff or white or ivory. And so Ethiopians, in our experience, Ethiopians and Eritreans prefer the brown teff. Um, and then the lighter teff is nicer for blends and mixes if you're making a flour blend or a cake blend because it's a little bit, it's lighter. It's not white like whole wheat or like white flour, but it's um, it helps with with your baking a little bit more because the brown teff really does turn the batter or the dough quite dark. So it's harder to tell when the product is done in the oven. But um, teff is, in terms of uh, nutritional benefits, really high in protein, calcium, iron, and fiber. My favorite fun fact about teff is that Ethiopian women don't struggle with anemia during pregnancy because of you know how much injera they're eating every day. So um, that's it, it's just really, it's really good for you. I will refrain from saying it's a superfood because a superfood just means it's really nutrient dense, which descri describes all whole foods. <laughs> but it's a very good for you grain that has a really nutty kind of malty flavor. So it's been really fun to find different flavors that it works well with um, based on, you know, its traditional profile. So it really it's a really hearty grain. So that's where it comes up with our product Tefola original and, you know, finding anyway, we'll talk about Tefola, I'm sure, but um, it's just been fun to work with the new grain and then exploring other grains as they come up. Sure. Will you go ahead and talk about Tefola because I know you had initially started with milling Tef for flour. Is that right? But now you're working on different products, of course, but your main product is granola. And tell us what that looks like and how, how you, you know, go from harvesting grain on the farm and the processing, which is also a part of Maple Drive Farms operation to getting it into your products for Tefola. Yeah. So we actually started, as you mentioned, um, our intention was to grow Tef, figure out how to clean it, harvest it, uh, you know, process it into flour and then sell to Ethiopian restaurants. And that worked for a little bit. We ended up figuring out how to get to, you know, a five pound bag of teff flour. And we sold it on Amazon for a while. But 
after a year and a half, we just weren't seeing the traction that we really wanted to see. You know, we were still running ads and I was very new at the CPG or consumer packaged goods space. Mm -hmm. And so I knew there was a way to introduce this grain to, you know, Western culture (laughs) in Western, you know, America in a really familiar and accessible way, because at the time, gluten-free wasn't, um, I don't even know how to say it. Like it wasn't as scary as it was back then. People were terrified by gluten-free. Like they wouldn't know what to do with the flour if we just sold it to them. So after realizing we weren't getting that traction on Amazon, I started working with the whole grain in the kitchen and making it into a product, um, like a ready to eat product or you know, a value added product. So I worked with making quick breads. I tried making regular sourdough bread. At one point I accidentally made alcoholic energy bites, which was um, a mistake. I mean, maybe a happy (laughs) mistake. I think I would have found the target audience, but um, so what happened was, and this is very scientific. um, Mm -hmm. I was cooking teff, the whole grain teff in water until it was fully done. And then I was mixing that with dates and cocoa powder and chia and coconut oil and all these other yummy things. But I guess I didn't totally kill the yeast on the teff because the yeast of the teff was reacting with the sugar of the dates. And within two days, I would open up, you know, the Tupperware with these bites in them. And I'm like, that's alcohol. (laughs) That is an alcohol smell. So um, one day on a whim, I was making granola, decided to add, you know, a handful of teff and took it to my really picky sister. I love her. Bless her. Um, I took it to my sister just for her to try it because she knew what I was doing. And I adore people who are so honest because they really do help. But um, she and her husband ate a pound of it in two days. And wow. so that's like a lot of granola. It's like a lot yes. of granola. And so they started buying it by the Tupperware. And um, I worked on getting into a shared commercial kitchen. And yeah, when we started, which is officially, uh, will be five years old on Monday, which is very exciting to me. Congratulations. But, um, <laughs> thank you. So when we started, we just had one flavor and that was Tefl original. So almond, cinnamon, dried cranberry, buckwheat, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, walnuts, um, all these amazing, amazing ingredients that really create layers of flavor. So for nearly three years, we just had that one flavor. And with the that time, I you know, learned how to run a CPG company and learned what that meant, learned what supply chain was and sourcing and, you know, working with suppliers and going through a rebrand. And then we launched two additional flavors in 2020. What a wild year. But uh, we launched our chocolate charm, which is cocoa, cashew and coconut. And then we launched berry burst, which is strawberry, lemon, lavender and poppy seed. And with those two additions, It really helped our brand grow up. And, you know, again, it always goes back to those decisions. And as a business owner, knowing that your decisions can 
you know, sink or right the ship, um, if you will. It's just a really important mindset and understanding and a responsibility to have as an owner. So that's a little bit about Tepelo. And if I can plug our upcoming product, which is very exciting, we will be launching Tepelo Bites, which I know you have tried, Megan. Uh, yes, we'll be launching. Goes. Thank you. <laughs> so we wanted to, customers have been asking us for a portable on-the-go version of Tefola for years. And I was always remembering um, the mishap of the alcoholic energy bites. So I kind of avoided it for a while, but I figured out a way to make um, Tefola on the go. So it is, the ingredients are actually Tefola plus dates and some other add-ins, but um, it's mm-hmm. been a very exciting journey. And I am so excited to get these out into the world. I've been working on this product. Like I had the idea, um, I had the idea two years ago and now Mm -hmm. I'm like (laughs) finally getting it into the world. (laughs) Finally. Um, so that's been, that's fun to look forward to. So I love that the idea from the alcoholic energy (laughs) coming to fruition in some form. (laughs) Yes. Minus the alcohol. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you can tuck that kind of idea and recipe away for maybe another another one day. One day Tef will be, I don't know, maybe we'll have a whiskey or a beer or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Does whiskey need yeast. I don't know anything about whiskey. I'm sorry, but, um, future product research right there. We'll outsource the distilling to someone. (laughs) Yes. Well, I love, I love to hearing how the decision-making that you go through, um, is so similar to how your family has made decisions on the farm. And you, you mentioned your grandpa and your dad and, and what those, um, plans were and how they've changed and grown. And I know that as a a part of Maple Drive Farm is the processing facility for the specialty grains. And that's a big decision. That was a big decision, an investment, and also um, a solution for processing, which was a need in order to, you know, do something with those specialty grains and that you're able to do something with those specialty grains. Can you talk about that processing facility and kind of tell us what that looks like and, and um, you know, what do you process through there? Where does it go after? And why is that so integral for Tefola? Absolutely. So when we started growing Tef, the farm was sending it to another processing facility, if you will, to clean it. And cleaning Tef does not include water and soap, which is definitely what I thought when I first heard the phrase, I was like, that's a lot of water. Like, how are they going to do this? What about sprouting anyway? So it does not include any water. So it's separating weed seeds and bits of dirt and that kind of thing from the grain itself. So we were sending that to someone else to do, but after a while, um, we saw the need to be, you know, not certified gluten-free, but testing to under, you know, 20 parts per million, which is important for customers. And my brand Tefola is all gluten-free and all vegan. And so I needed to, you know, have testing to back it up that we, it was gluten-free. And so we were looking for the nearest facility that knew how to clean Tef and also was a gluten-free facility. And the closest one we found was in California 
which is not close, (laughs) not at all close. And so it did make sense for us to, you know, ship less than a truckload of product out there, pay for the cleaning and then pay for it to come all the way back. And so as many farmers have a tendency to do, my dad started collecting equipment and started to, you know, figure out how to clean the tough ourselves. And so that was about 2018, 2019 that he started putting, you know, some pieces of equipment together. And now we started building the facility in 2020, I want to say maybe late 2019. And that really came up because we wanted our own building. We wanted it to be, um, you know, a clean, dedicated space where we could get certifications if we wanted to, um, but really start with something that we could scale, knowing that if TEF is in demand, um, other grains are as well. And so around the same time, we I <laughs> requested that my dad try growing buckwheat. Mm-hmm. And buckwheat um, in our region of the country is known as the poor man's crop because it grows in, you know, not great soil. And you can, it's very, it does very well in, you know, a lot of different types of soil. And so we can grow buckwheat very, very well, which is great news. And so, of course, I'm using it in my products as well. And so then we came across the discovery that most of the buckwheat flour and most buckwheat out there is sold with the hulls on it. And so the hulls are kind of like a coat for the groat, if you want to, <laughs> you want to say it that way. And so yep. it's totally edible, but it's very, uh, it's very bitter. And so when you remove the hull, you get a very sweet, in my opinion, a very sweet, um, you know, crunchy growth, which adds to the texture of our products really, really well. And so with the building of the cleaning um, facility on the farm, we also started to look at how can we also clean buckwheat, not only clean buckwheat, but also dehull buckwheat. And so now we have a dehuller. And it was just earlier this year of 2022 that we finally got the full process from, you know, dirty teff and dirty buckwheat coming in off the field all the way through to a really clean product that, you know, is then bagged into 50 pound bags and sent over to our production facility. So what's been really cool to see, and I know I keep saying that, but what's been so I guess magical and very exciting and I can't believe we're here is you know pouring buckwheat into the mixer with all these other ingredients some of which have come from as far away as Indonesia like our cinnamon and our cashew and coconut and then we're also adding a product that is grown on land that I you know was running on as a kid which is a pretty cool thing to think about that it's very much so our land is supporting us, you know, our land is able to create something. And then I use that to not only feed people, but also, you know, create a living for myself and create jobs and and that kind of thing. So it's been a really a long journey to get to the point where we could dehaul buckwheat because that took a lot of time and a lot of equipment to figure out how to do. But now we're at the point where we can clean and dehaul 
pretty much any gluten-free grain. And now we're starting to talk to more brands outside of Tefola for what cleaning and processing we can do for them. And so we're talking to one that's in the Pacific Northwest, who is also a major fan of ancient grains. And if I can plug her, um, Joni from Snacktivist is a brilliant, brilliant human. And we're starting to work with them. They, you know, have a supply chain conundrum. And we're hoping that our processing facility can help them out because we are in a, you know, relatively central east kind of location. So it's, um, it's helpful that from a supply chain and freight kind of perspective. So it's, I'm so excited for the future. It feels like we're really just beginning with the farm. Um, and now I'm getting more calls from people about, hey, so I heard from, you know, so and so that you've got this buckwheat dehauling. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about it? And even like bigger names are calling me and I'm like, you, this is a cold call. What? <laughs> this is insane. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool. After this short break, Claire talks about the opportunities her business can have on her local community and for her family farm business. Cleaner cuts, better windrows, denser bales. You've heard the stories about legendary hay in the Heston by Massey Ferguson machines that make it happen. From self-propelled windrowers and mower conditioners to square and round balers, Heston has the equipment you need to start your own hay legend, whether you're feeding your own herd or running a full-scale hay operation. Be legendary. Run Heston Hay Equipment. Learn more at MasseyFerguson.com or visit your local Heston by Massey Ferguson dealer. And now, back to the podcast. So talk about the big picture opportunity that could exist as a processing facility, working with, you know, maybe big brands someday and and being able to tell growers in your network that they could potentially um, help fulfill contracts and that's some security for them. How What does that look like? Is that something you're hoping to do? For sure. So in my wanderings around the food community and the food world, I come across ingredient suppliers. And when I mentioned that you know, we're also a farm and growing, cleaning, processing these grains, they are immediately interested. And usually when I am requesting (laughs) ingredient prices, they fire back like a, well, what are your ingredient prices? So it turns into, um, it turns into a great conversation because our farm is producing, you know, raw, ready to use ingredients that is incredibly valuable for tons of brands out there, just like you're mentioning. So what we're seeing in the future as uh, probably our main source of revenue for this for this facility is, you know, signing contracts with brands for, you know, certain amount of ingredients. And then whether that's ingredient or, you know, grains that are grown on our farm or grains they've purchased from elsewhere and are, you know, shipping to our facility. And then, you know, we're just a contract, you know, manufacturing or contract processing for them. But where I know that I am very good at and I'm good with relationships, where that really starts to become amplified is when, let's say that brand is growing or, you know, needs a different grain than is normally in their lineup. Because of all of my connections in the farming community, I will be able to plug, you know, the people that I know and say, you know, oh, you need buckwheat or you need a specific, you know, organic buckwheat. I can, let me call my friend, you know, he's doing X number of acres a year and I'll bet he could help 
fill your contract for you. And so then it becomes a, um, we become a destination for brands who are looking for, you know, this type of high quality specialty grains that are, you know, ready for the next stage of processing. And it then starts to feed our local economy of, you know, the upper Midwest grain, grain shed, if you will. So, cause there are a lot of farmers in the upper Midwest. West growing specialty grains. And if we can become, if our processing facility can become the, the place to go for finished products um, or finished ingredients, I should say, that's a really impactful um, opportunity for us, for sure, to, you know, keep our dollars local. That's really, really important. Um, and it also creates a lot of jobs. So we've already created one job because of this facility. And that's, I mean, amazing. And he's, he actually lives on our road and we just hadn't, our paths hadn't crossed. And because of I don't, fate, whatever it is, higher powers, whatever you believe in, I mean, the timing couldn't have been better. We had this facility, we needed someone to run it. Um, and he was interested and it just, it really worked out. So I'm looking forward to not only being able to hire more people in our community, but also be buying from local farmers or regional farmers and giving them some, you know, stabilizing their PL. Because if we sign contracts with these brands, we can sign contracts with these farmers. And so they have a buyer before they're putting seed into the ground, which is incredibly powerful when you're taking a risk and growing a specialty niche grain. Yes. If we had, we never had a buyer when we were putting TEF into the ground. I mean, I'm not even counting myself as a buyer because Tefl is pretty small, but we didn't have that stability in the beginning. And so if we can help work, like if we can work with other farmers to say, look, we'll buy what you have. We're not promising a price because we have to know the purity first, but we'll buy what you have. So you don't have to store it. You don't have to worry about where it's going. Um, it's just a really um empowering thing and it really motivates farmers to think i i want to say like think twice about what they're putting into the ground because i've had so many conversations with people in the grain and food world of you know what are the values that i care about and what do i want the future to look like and is it really you know, monocropping just because of profit? Like, what are we really caring about here? And do we care about the earth and the soil? I think every farmer cares about the soil, absolutely. Um, but let's talk about the practices that really benefit the soil. And of course, it has to make sense economically. And I'm not saying, you know, never touch your fields with, you know, till or herbicides or pesticides. Or, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, let's think about replenishing the soil we have but also making sure it makes sense for the community from an economic standpoint. So let's make sure farmers get paid what they're worth and let's make sure we're replenishing this soil and not depleting it of nutrients and, you know, erosion and all of that. Let's, there's, I'm hesitant to say balance, but there is a balance to it all and a, a beautiful cycle that can happen. And I'm so grateful that I get to be, part of that solution and part of that, you know, team of people working out that puzzle and what that puzzle can look like. So I think as more consumers get, um, are more aware of what regenerative agriculture is, 
I think they're going to start asking more questions and more questions. Usually, um, you know, sunlight is a great disinfectant. So, you know, let's open up like what people's growing practices are. Let's start talking about this. Let's talk about specialty grains. Let's, you know, talk about what we want the future of our earth to look like. And then let's all sit down and figure out how to do that. That goes into great lessons learned. And I know that that's been a part of, you know, your grandpa's journey on the farm, your dad's journey on the farm, your journey, creating a company and establishing a mission and, and a vision for the future. And, and I wanted to hear from you about the lessons you've learned as an entrepreneur and also what advice you have for entrepreneurs in food and ag. And, you know, you sort of mentioned a few things there, even like thinking critically, finding opportunities, um, maybe valuing regenerative practices that also make sense for, you know, financial stability. Uh, so what, uh, what lessons have you learned and what advice would you share? So, so much learning has happened. Um, Step number one, if you're like, mm, I think I want to start something, um, you will never stop learning. And the moment you think you've stopped learning, um, I don't even know what to tell you. Like, you're just always going to be learning. So some big things for us, um, very, very tangible, very relatable to food CPGers or food people. If your margins don't make sense at a small scale, they will not make sense at a large scale. I can promise you that it is not a matter of, oh, when I have, you know, purchasing power, my ingredient cost will go down. Yes, it will. But then other things will go up. Like you, like, you know, freight in and freight out. <laughs> that is a big item on the line sheet. So if your margins don't make sense, at a micro level in your kitchen, they are not going to make sense at scale. I can promise you that. So a lot of what's happened over the past five years is clarity. And every time I find clarity and I'm like, yep, we're here. We have clarity around what our differentiators are. We have clarity around who our audience is. Um, you know, six months later, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's way more clear. So it's constantly a refinement of um, who you are, what you stand for, and refinement in terms of maybe not at the core of what you're doing, but a refinement in the messaging or the exact words or the words that are on your website or the words in your pitch deck, or it's just constantly refining and rephrasing what you believe and what the dream you are chasing and the idea you're building, it's constantly tweaking that based on the audience that you're talking to. Um, so most recently, and I'm talking very recently here, like in the past two or three months, I figured out that our differentiators are the clean label ingredient. And I'm putting that in quotes for those listening on the podcast, because I don't love that term clean, but a good ingredient label with no additives, no fillers, that kind of thing. And then the other point of differentiation is our commitment to sourcing sustainably and, you know, starting with the ancient grains regeneratively grown on our farm. And when you phrase it like that, you know, we're in the sustainable goods category and the naturally healthy foods category. Investors are way listening, way more. Um, but then also consumers are like, 
well, I want to shop more sustainably. Um, so the data giant Nielsen is shared that 60% of Americans are in this sustainable mainstream category, meaning they want to shop more sustainably, but they want these added benefits like health. And so when you talk to people about that and you're like, listen, you know, 75% of millennials are changing their habits with the environment in mind. They're changing their purchasing habits. Like this is a much bigger movement than, you know, any one of us. So learning how to tell the story of the farm and, you know, seventh generation farm, 2,300 acres pivoting from corn and soy to grains. That's one part of the story. And then, you know, you blow it up and say, you know, five years ago, the sustainable goods category was, you know, 93 billion. And now sustainable goods reached 150 billion or that kind of thing. So telling that story in a way it had telling, I've gotten a lot better at telling that story and um, connecting us to the larger picture. And then one other piece of advice that I had to take a hefty dose of myself and I think this is true for everyone, but especially in building a CPG brand, um, and I don't know if this sounds cheesy or whatever, but um, you are going to make mistakes that are so big, they take your breath away with how dumb, how stupid you feel, how frustrated you are at yourself, um, like they will leave you like gasping with disbelief. Um, but everyone makes those kinds of mistakes. I literally, I learned of that mistake that I made this morning and, um, extreme frustration, um, you know, and you're going to make those mistakes and it's okay. And it doesn't feel okay. And you're going to say, this is an unforgivable mistake. I can't believe I did this. Um, but the most important thing is that you take a breath um, go on a walk, you know, breathe in some lavender, whatever, whatever your process is. Um, and then like, I'm not saying move on, but keep going and know that, you know, if you're, if a friend or your sister or your mom made that type of mistake, what would you tell them and how would you talk to them? And then try, 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 try to talk to yourself that way. Um, it's not easy, but knowing and recognizing those mistakes usually leads, I say usually because I can't think of a time when it hasn't, but I'm sure they exist, but those mistakes and recognizing them shape the company because you can make better decisions because you have experience. So yes, you super messed up. And yes, you probably lost a lot of money or you messed up on a really cool opportunity that would have been possibly business changing. You made that mistake and it's horrible. However, you've learned from it and you've got to learn from it. You got to learn from it, but you have to forgive yourself and keep going. Um, I cannot tell you how many of those, I mean, the gut wrenching ones, are probably less than 10, <laughs> but, um, those are, those are tough days. They're hard days. And so there's going to be really bad days. And there's also going to be absolutely incredible days where you're like, I can't believe I get to do this and what an amazing life I get to lead. 
And those are true. Both can be true at the same time. You can be the world's worst business owner and you want to fire yourself. And you can also be on top of the world and just so incredibly proud of yourself. There is a duality there and you will, it will always be both. It will always, always be both. And I think that's um, personal growth. That's personal. That's your journey as a business owner, a CEO, a human on this planet. That's the human experience. And that's, I think, I think that's the fun part of it. I think it's as sick as that is, <laughs> it's like as crazy as that is too. Um, I don't know. It sounds kind of funny, but I don't know. Those are, it has to be both. It can't be just one or just the other. You can't be the world's dumbest person ever, but also have built a company that leads to amazing, amazing days. They're both. You know, even your your grandpa Nick said, and this is in the story, that if you make at least 51% of your decisions good, if you do good on those, you're doing okay. And, and yeah. I love that that was his perspective because that sort of seems like it has to be the foundation yeah. of moving forward. Like you said, moving forward and pushing through, um, yeah. you learn, but if you're making most of your decisions, right, you're doing okay. Yeah. And 51% is most, that yeah. is the majority, most of your decisions. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, I mean, and when he said that I, it just, it's so happy. <laughs> I'm like, that is so true. It's so true. It takes um, the pressure off as it well. It takes so much pressure mm-hmm. off because it's not, your company doesn't rest on one good decision and you being terrified of, you know, is this the right decision or the wrong decision? Success is thousands and thousands and thousands of the right decisions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thousands and thousands of the wrong ones, as long as it's, <laughs> you know, 51%. Yeah. Um, so I'll never forget that. That was pretty good advice. Yeah. Claire, thank you so much for talking with us today and telling us more about your connection to the farm and Tefola and what the future looks like for our specialty grains. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. This podcast was brought to you by Massey Ferguson, who has been building the equipment for those born to farm for 175 years. Thank you to Claire Smith for being our guest today. Check out eattefala.com to learn more about Claire's business. Also, you can contact Claire by emailing her at claire at tanaragrains.com. You can read more about Maple Drive Farms in the December issue of Successful Farming and on our website, agriculture.com. 